Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's Friday, July 22nd. From inside the WTOP newsroom, this is the DMV Download, brought to you by the men and women of Steamfitters Local 602. Get an estimate and learn more at steamfitters-602.org. Today, leaders from across the D.C. region met to figure out what to do about the thousands of immigrants bused to Union Station by the governors of Texas and Arizona. Abel Nunez, director of a local nonprofit, was at the meeting and tells us what's going on. It's impacting us, and if and if we don't get resources and we're unable to appropriately receive these people, then they become the city's responsibility because they're going to be in city streets. And we also talk about the people who have made the 30-hour bus ride from Texas and Arizona to here in D.C. So they have experienced trauma. They uh, have had to survive in, in, in different countries. Thanks for joining us. I'm Luke Garrett. Megan is off today. Buses have been dropping off immigrants at Union Station by the thousands over the last three months. These buses are chartered by both Governors Greg Abbott of Texas and Doug Ducey of Arizona. Here's Governor Greg Abbott promoting this move to bus immigrants from Texas to D.C. on Fox News this spring. You can contribute okay. uh, to us uh, yeah. busing those migrants to Washington, D.C. and make the Biden administration deal with it themselves. Now, since this program started, more than 3,500 immigrants have been dropped off with little more than the clothes on their back and nowhere to go, really. Local nonprofits have filled in this gap, and one of them is Cara Sen, a decades-old nonprofit that serves immigrants in the DMV. Abel Nunez is the director of Cara Sen, and he joins us now. So, Abel, your organization is working with these immigrants every day and seeing this all unfold. Tell us what's really going on on the ground. Well, since April 13th, our organization, along with mutual aid organizations and Catholic Charities of D.C., we really responded to receiving the the immigrants. We have to remember that when Texas Governor Abbott um, is sending those buses, he doesn't coordinate with anyone in the district. So he basically drops them off in front of Union Station. And so if there's no one there to actually receive them and say, if you need help, follow us, they will be just wandering on the streets, which is what he wants to do. He hasn't hidden that, right? You know, I I believe that beyond a political stunt, it's it's disgusting to use vulnerable populations for a political point, right? Because at the end of the day, these people are coming here and there's no coordination with anyone. So we've been responding by basically receiving them, uh, giving them a meal when possible, some clothing uh, kits, and then purchasing their tickets uh, to their next destination since most of them are not staying in Washington, D.C. That wasn't their, their their final destination. And so for us, we quickly try to get them out of the city, and, and when we can't, then we try to put them up in hotels while we we, we figure out what their next move is. Mm. And there is a small group of folks out of those that come in less than 10% that really have nowhere to go. So for them staying in D.C. versus any other major city, it's the same. And and those, we, we, 
we we try to do our best, but the reality is that without any long-term housing, they they kind of fall into the folks that require shelters or or whatever resources the city may have. And can you put into context how many people, immigrants, we're really talking about here? Uh, yeah, there's over been over 3,000 people from Texas alone that have arrived. Uh, buses arrived, you know, sometimes three buses per day. Up to up to, we've had up to four buses anywhere. At the beginning, it was less, maybe 15 people to 20 people. Now we're seeing consistently anywhere from 20 to 40 people per bus, right? So on any given day, that could be 120 people that are coming that day. We have to figure out what we do with them. Mm. And it sounds like, and tell me if I'm wrong, it sounds like the current status quo, the current situation isn't sustainable. So what really needs to be done from a financial perspective, from a, a government perspective? I think that you know, the way we've been doing it, we didn't have that the type of infrastructure necessary to receive people coming in, especially for those that weren't making this their final destination. Um, this is what the border uh, organizations do when they receive immigrants from Border Patrol, right? They kind of assess what help they can give them so they can uh, make it to their next part of their journey. So for us, we didn't have that. And, and so what we need is an investment from both the federal government and and the local government and identifying a space like a welcoming center where people can actually land. Remember, this bus, have, we have no coordination. We get information from another nonprofit in Del Rio, Texas, that tells us the number of buses and the number of people on those buses. But we have no communication with the Texas government. So, you know, at times a bus may come at 8 at night, you know, or at 6 in the morning. And so without having a, a centralized space where we can not only receive them, but also add additional resources, it, it means that we're doing it on the street. Right? We're doing it in any church that opens its doors to us or even Union Station itself. Right? We, you know, Union Station has been very generous in terms of not kicking us out when they see this uh, huge amount of folks, but to move every day food Clothing is very difficult and it's very taxing versus having a space where we can, independent of the time of the day that they come, take them, put them in the in the center so they can rest, they can get food, and then we can ascertain what their next step is. Got it. And to be honest, I still am kind of foggy on why all these buses are coming to D.C. Why did Governor Greg Abbott want to do this in the first place? Well, he wanted it to make a political point. He he disagrees with the Biden administration's immigration policy, and and he has a, every right to disagree. But when he's sending it, you know, because he was saying, "Well, I'm I'm taking it to Biden, so I'm showing what we go through," and I'm like, "But it's not hitting Biden. It's not hitting the federal government. We may be a federal city, we may be a federal district, but it's the local community who's been receiving them. It's been, you know." you know, our organization, Catholic Charities, mutual aid organizations that are receiving them. And so it's impacting us. And if and if we don't get resources and we're unable to appropriately receive these people, then they become the city's responsibility because they're going to be in city streets, right? Then police uh, will get involved and all the other agencies. And so Abbott, in his 
you know, fight with the Biden administration, we are being held hostage by him, right? It's unfair that we have to pay the price for a, a political point with the federal government. Again, and using vulnerable populations to do that, which is, in, you know, disgusting in and of itself, right? And and But this could be a win-win situation where if he is really concerned about all the the weight of receiving all these immigrants as they're coming through the border, then and he's willing to spend Texas money on it, then he could do a much better job, right? Because D.C. wouldn't be the target. It would be where they're going. I mean, we, we send people to New York, to Miami, to Chicago. So why don't you send some of those buses there where those people are actually going uh, It's their final destination? You're sending them here. I mean, even if they're going to New York, it gets them closer, but it's not their final destination. And so that means locally we have to help them get to that place. And after the break, we talk about the people on these buses, what their story is, and what their reality is like when they get here. Backed by the experience of its hardworking members, Steamfitters Local 602 is ready to take on your next commercial heating, cooling, HVAC, or refrigeration project. Steamfitters Local 602 adds value to our community through its partnerships with local contractors and building owners, all while keeping the focus on improving the lives of its members and their families throughout the DMV. For work that's on time and on budget, go to steamfitters-602.org to schedule your next project. That's steamfitters-602.org. Steamfitters Local 602, changing lives. Thanks for listening to the DMV Download. If you like this show, give us five stars and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. We love hearing from you guys, and your reviews really do help other listeners find this, our area's only in-depth daily local news podcast. And thank you for making us a part of your day. And we return now to my conversation with Abel Nunez. And so let's talk about the families, the people who have made these 30-hour bus rides from Texas now to D.C. Who are they and what's the reality they're coming to when they get dropped off at Union Station? Uh, Well, so you have to understand these people have recently arrived. They have been recently released from immigration detention from Border Patrol. They have been sometimes uh, traveling through all of Latin America for months. We have some uh, immigrants from Central Africa, particularly Angola and the Congo, that enter through Brazil and then walk all the way to the southern border. So they have experienced trauma, they uh, had had to survive in, in, in different countries, but they also, when they get to the U.S., have no sense of sort of the vastness of, of, of this nation, of how huge it is. So, you know, when, when you know, and, and, and I've been to the border when they kind of show them the map of the U.S., it's still, uh, it's not in context for them. It's just a picture for them, right? And, and when you re- realize that from Texas to D.C., it's a huge distance. They don't get that. They don't understand the money, how expensive things are here compared to Latin America, right? So, for example, they're surprised that they can't get a hotel room for like $5, $5 or $10. And we're like, Mm. yeah, that that doesn't exist in the U.S., right? Right. They don't get how expensive tickets are. They don't don't understand how expensive buying a lunch, you know, at, at any store, whether it's a fast food place or compared to what they can get in in Latin America. And so part of it is is how do we receive them and give them the tools to survive in the U.S., not just immigration-related information, which they need, but also cultural competency so they can can integrate better wherever their final destination is. 
Mm. And let's talk for a second about the local impact here. You know, it sounds like organizations, local organizations are being pushed to their limit. So, you know, what will happen if these, you know, buses keep coming, which it sounds like they will, but the government, either federal or city, doesn't step in here and help? What will happen to D.C.? Well, what's going to happen is if we lose our ability to receive them, that means that, I mean, we can send, I guess, people to just usher them to Union Station, but they'll end up on the street, right? I mean, and, and when we think about even the shelter system, they don't even know how to access that. So it's easy to say, oh, they're going to overwhelm our shelter system. But even initially, they they don't come with knowledge of how you know, social services uh, and health uh, resources, housing resources work in the United States or in any city for that matter. So that means that they're going to be wandering the streets. They're going to be panhandling. You know, they're going to be, they're not going to know where to go to use bathrooms. They're not going to know any of that. So they're going to create chaos for the city. And so the city is probably going to respond. You know, this is where police can get engaged and not in a positive way. So what we're trying to do and we're trying to work with the city is to make them see whether whether you agree that, you know, and we may agree that it's a federal issue, people are going to be in the city. And how do we manage this flow so it doesn't overburden an already burdened system of helping people that are houseless. Right. And so you're saying that there needs to be a federal and local response. And, you know, D.C. leaders, D.C. regional leaders just met today about this issue exactly. So focusing in on a local response, what does, you know, D.C., for example, need to do to address this problem, in your opinion? Well, I mean, I think that that this is not going to be it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be like cheap. There, 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 we are going to the city will have to put some some resources, but those resources is an investment so that the problem doesn't get worse, and that we're protecting the the, the sort of the, the institutions that exist and the resources that exist to help the residents of the District of Columbia who require housing and and, and other needs, mm. right? So, and and the other thing is that the city. As much as it is a burden to them, it is a city that has money. Uh, right. It's it's been in the black for several years, so so we're not a city that's underfunded. You know, the, the, there's a surplus, and so I think this is the time that you can use that so that we don't we don't cause needless pain to to people that are just seeking protection and a better life for themselves and their families. And your nonprofit, Cadison, has been around D.C. since the '80s. Can you put this current moment into context for us? Have we seen anything like this before? This flow is not new to D.C. Uh, the difference is that this time, you know, there's an immigrant uh, community that is maturing, that is able to pull resources, and we're trying to work with the city to really address them. In the 80s, when Salvadorians first came, there was nothing here for them. The The reason why Carecen exists, it was created to help integrate that initial flow. Right. So so it's not something new. Right. But, we, you know, we have short memories, unfortunately, in this country. And in the early 80s, it was the Salvadoran community that did it. Now it's this flow, primarily Venezuelans, Cubans and, and, and Nicaraguans. And most of them are not even coming to the to the DMV to stay. They, again, to them, it was just a, a bus ride to the region. So if we work more efficiently with the the both the federal and the local government, 
we can use those efficiencies of working together to make sure that we can have a sustainable program that is not expensive. Um, it, 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 there's always going to be cost around them. But the way we're doing them now, it's actually you know three times more expensive because we don't have a space. And so I think the city can can provide a space for us when we receive them. The federal government can provide us more additional funds so that these people make it to their families and then that their families begin to to receive them and, and do the work of integration. Abel Nunez with Keresen, thank you so much for explaining, you know, this reality to us. Sure, definitely. Thank you for, for having me. And before we go, we're going to address the elephant in the room. And by we, I mean Rosie and I. Rosie's hey. here. Happy to be back. Sweet. So the president got COVID, but when the president got COVID, you know, it was a different feeling from when the previous president, President Trump, got COVID. I was in the newsroom for both times. Um, I was there at 3 a.m. when President Trump got it. It was crazy. But yesterday when, you know, President Biden got it, it was just kind of like, okay, this is big news, but it's going to be okay. It kind of marks a different phase of the pandemic, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking that, too, watching the a house hearing last night. Of course, Representative Benny Thompson has COVID right now. Anthony Fauci just, I think, recovered from COVID. It really feels like everyone is getting COVID from this BA5 variant. It's right. so contagious. It's kind of, what's the word, immunoevasive. And it just so happens that on the same day that this Biden news comes out, the Washington Post published this very fun story um, about what's known as the super dodgers of COVID. So question for you, Luke, have you had COVID yet? I guess I am a super dodger because super I have dodger. not had COVID as far as I know, you know, like, um, yeah, no, I definitely haven't. Right. I haven't either. Wow. And so, so reading this article, I mean, it's funny. So a super dodger, the way that they define it is just someone who over the past two and a half years somehow has still, as you mentioned, to our knowledge, not gotten sick with COVID. Mm. So it's just this funny thing where those of us who are super dodgers are we're sort of proud of it. It's sort of like, oh, maybe I'm superhuman <laughs> or my masks are stronger or I'm drinking this tea or, you know, whatever. There's some really funny stories in the Post article about people with sort of weird habits that they think That's might so be protecting funny. them. But it's a weird era to be in. Yeah, totally. For the record, I have not read this Washington Post article, but I do have kind of like a, a funky little thing that I do. I, I drink apple cider vinegar every day oh my god so like you have you have a thing <laughs> i'm that one you of do. these people oh my, oh my gosh yeah so i like boil water every night and then i put some apple cider vinegar put some cinnamon and i just drink it and ever since the pandemic started i just have been doing it you know just because it like is supposed to you know i guess boost immunity and it's kind of like tasty and yummy and yeah. kind of gets me in like the sleep mode so wow that's funny that i have to test that i also for a while every time i'd get a little tickle in my throat i would eat some pickled garlic Wow, and I thought maybe that was that was curing me from from sickness. I'm I'm out of my pickled garlic now, so I'm I'm <laughs> just left for. to the wolves. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, you know maybe there's something to all these little, you know, habits we've created. Or not, or it's just or totally not. random. It's just how we get through this thing. Wow, well, what a good story. Yeah. And then I'll do it for us today on the DMV download. This show is brought to you by Steamfitters Local 602. Our managing editor is Craig Schwab, and our music is by Real World. Give us a review and rate our show if you get the chance. And while you're there, subscribe. So you can get every episode. Um, you can also find out more about this podcast at dmvdownload.com. The DMV Downloads are a product of WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in D.C., 107.7 FM in Virginia, 103.9 FM in Frederick, Maryland, online at wtop.com, and on the WTOP News app. Have a great weekend and see you Monday.